Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we're in for a treat. Our guest is David Vélez, founder and CEO of Nubank, considered the largest independent new bank in the world. And after only seven years since founding, the company now has over 25 million clients. Nubank has raised over $820 million from some of the most prestigious venture capital funds in the globe, including Sequoia, Ribbit Capital, DST, Kazakh Ventures, QED, and many more. Before founding Nubank in Brazil in 2013, David was a partner at Sequoia Capital in charge of the firm's Latin American investments. Before Sequoia, he worked in investment banking and growth equity at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and General Atlantic. David has a BS in management science and engineering from Stanford University and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And now, please join me in an inspiring conversation with David Vélez. Well, welcome, David, and thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you here. Can we start Making by you? No, absolutely. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Colombia. I uh, was there until I was eight, and my family had to move to Costa Rica when Colombia was going through, through a really tough times. And went to school in the U.S., did engineering. Oh, come from a family of entrepreneurs. My dad has 12 siblings. All of them are entrepreneurs, small companies. Uh, but that was a bit of the, of the DNA, a, a bit of the Kool-Aid that, we, that I drank at home was that you had to start your own business, that you had to go on your own, that you shouldn't have a boss. So that's a bit of what I heard every single day from home. And that was the idea when I went to school, started engineering. After four years of undergrad, had no idea how to even begin to start a business, was completely frozen, uh, immobilized, trying to come up with that great idea and even begin creating a startup. And so I, I took the more traditional route of financial services, uh, did investment banking in New York for a few years, then went to private equity uh, with a firm called General Atlantic that was starting to open uh, offices in Latin America. I happened to be their closest thing that they had to a Brazilian. And so with that, they invited me to open their office in Brazil. So I moved to Brazil, to Sao Paulo in 2008, opened GA's office uh, in Brazil. And it was a great opportunity to just uh, look at a number of different industries across Latin America, especially financial services. I was spending a lot of time in financial services, working very closely also with a gentleman named Nigel Morris, who's the co-founder of Capital One. And I learned a lot about Nigel. I learned a lot about the Capital One case and was really uh, interested about financial services as, a, as an industry that has just a ton of impact in the region. Also an industry that, that surprisingly was showed profits and growth through decades and decades with no interruption, even though Latin America obviously had pretty significant cycles. 
After three years at GA, I felt that I wanted to now really go on my entrepreneurship route, but did that through MBA. We went back to school to do an MBA. And uh, the idea was to spend two years focusing on idea, but then another firm, Sequoia Capital, showed up and said, hey, we're thinking about Latin America. Why don't you come and help us think where we should open an office for Sequoia here in Latin America? And that seemed like a great opportunity, even though I didn't really want to do investing anymore. I, I thought I could learn a ton from a firm like Sequoia, especially doing early stage investing. So I ended up working with Sequoia for about two years in parallel of doing business school at Stanford. And it was great, just great being able to be at school and, and back at Sequoia, flying to, to, to Brazil, uh, to Mexico, to Colombia. After graduation, I moved to Brazil to open Sequoia's office in Sao Paulo. But uh, maybe about five months after uh, we sort of came to terms with a sad realization that while Latin America obviously had a pretty big market and was a really relevant part of the world, there was very little interesting startups. The tech ecosystem didn't really exist. And the few startups that you see, that you saw in Sao Paulo mainly, were direct copycats of Silicon Valley startups that frankly were not really solving any real problem. And so for a firm that, like Sequoia that is you know, used to backing some of the best companies, some of the biggest companies in the world, it was just not interesting enough to go back the clone of you know, whatever, whatever startup Silicon, somebody in Silicon Valley was doing. And so with that, after coming to terms with that, um, I didn't really want to do investing anymore. I didn't really want to be based out of California anymore. That was sort of my cue to say, okay, finally, this is, my, this is the time to go on my own. I left Sequoia and spent for about two months back in Colombia and Brazil thinking about what to do. I focused very quickly in financial services. Also because I had a pretty tough time opening a bank account in Sao Paulo. When I moved to Sao Paulo for the first time, I had to go to that banking branch and it was the most painful experience I ever had in my entire life. Uh, I always describe it as almost going to jail because you have to go through these bulletproof doors. You have to leave your wallet and your cell phone and your bag in a locker outside the branch and go through the bulletproof door and wait 60 minutes and then talk to a branch manager that has a horrible attitude that is always thinking I'm doing you a favor, open your bank account. And it's not like, oh, let me, let me really serve you. I had to go to the banking branch maybe 10 times in the course of four months to eventually open a bank account that charged me about $30 per month, an interest rate that, had, that was over 400% a year. So I could not digest the fact that customers and people in Brazil were going through that customer experience, had to endure that. While at the same time, you have five banks that own 90% of the entire banking system. And that there was no competition. There was nobody competing. And that this banking oligopoly also showed some of the highest profitability in the world. And so understanding that, that sort of industry and also understanding what technology was doing came to that idea of new bank of building a full digital bank focused on the consumer experience and being able to pass the efficiency of the business model to the end consumer by, having, by not needing to charge that many fees and, uh, and offering a better user experience. That's very interesting. Now, David... Uh, there, this is a common problem across emerging markets. Did you 
happened to find some inspiration elsewhere uh, prior to launching Newbank? Did you see some examples that perhaps uh, gave you an idea of what you wanted to build? Sure. We are in the intersection of financial services and technology, right? In financial services, as I mentioned, Capital One was a big inspiration. Um, Capital One is a, is a fascinating case study of how, as a startup in the early 90s, they saw a very commoditized banking market in the U.S. Every bank charged 19.8% APR for all credit cards. Independent on risk, the APR was exactly the same. And Capital One, even though they were pre-internet, pre-big data, pre-mobile, they were able to use a strategy of data and analytics and marketing to segment the credit card market in the United States. And over the course of 10 years, they became the fifth largest bank in the U.S. Uh, and they built a really differentiated culture, very focused on data, very focused on analytics, very focused on recruiting incredible analytical talent. So that was a big inspiration, especially when I compare that to the banks in Latin America. And frankly, a lot of companies in Latin America, that are very much run by intuition, by what the boss thinks is the right thing. Is not They're not based on data. They're not based on testing. They're not necessarily go the extra mile in hiring phenomenal technical talent. We also ran into a company in Russia called Tinkoff Credit Systems, which in a way was the Capital One 2.0 or the Capital One of Russia. I went to Moscow, met with them, and it was very interesting to see how they had looked at the Capital One case, but they have built it for Russia in a post-internet pre-mobile era. So they were, they're still not necessarily were smartphone first, but they were already using the internet to provide a better user experience for customers. So those were two big inspirational in financial services. And then I was very much inspired by a lot of technology companies. I spent a lot of time really understanding Amazon, really understanding Netflix, understanding the cultures of those companies. Again, Latin America, even in 2012, there were no real technology companies. A lot of the companies have been more of a you know, they, they just go and they outsource the technology, they outsource the engineer, and is the business person seeing technology as an input, not seeing technology as a core differentiator. And what we wanted to do at Nubank is we, were a, we are a technology company that happens to be in financial services. We're not a financial services company that is used in technology. So uh, that might seem like a small detail, but is it makes all the difference. It makes a difference in how we... Think about our competitive advantage. It makes a lot of difference about how, how centralized or, or how important the engineering function is in the core of our business, how the bar that we have in terms of hiring engineers and having a global talent pool and building a, a culture of a technology company, culture that is very horizontal, that is not that hierarchical, that is fast, that is agile, that take risks. Again, very much different from the traditional banks and, and very much different than traditional Latin American companies. Sounds like you avoided bringing a lot of the legacy mentality and, and, and legacy frameworks uh, from banks by thinking technology first, right? Yeah, I know, exactly. I think starting with a wide piece of paper is always a huge opportunity, right? And we use that white sheet of paper to reinvent the business model, to reinvent financial services, as well as to think, how do we use the latest technology to build financial services uh, on top of it? 
as well as how do we start with a culture from a white piece of paper? What is the type of culture we want to create? Being very mindful since the very beginning. There's a lot of companies, a lot of startups, especially in Latin America, that where, where I've heard that oh, I'm too busy to build culture. I worry about that when we're successful and we grow up. And one of the things that I learned at Silicon Valley and, and that I learned with Sequoia was that the culture of a company is built in the first six months by the first 10 or 15 employees. Either you're mindful or not, the culture is going to get built. And so those early days, those early months are a really critical point in the development of the, of the company to set up the right basis for the culture. And we were super mindful about, about how we built that. Now, we're talking today at a point where Nubank has over 25 million clients. You're a team of thousands of people. Take us through precisely this, what you're talking about, the culture. Uh, how did you approach this at the early onset and how has it evolved over time? Sure. So when I, as I mentioned, we thought that having a very clear understanding of the culture in the very, 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 very first second of the, of the game was critical. I remember the first thing that I did to build Nubank was build two PowerPoint decks. One was the pitch of Nubank that I used to raise our seed round. And the second one is the culture pitch, the culture deck that I used to recruit my co-founders and recruit our first employees. And if you look at the deck of our culture deck, it hasn't really changed in seven years since we started. A couple of things, we've changed some words, we've changed some concepts. It's been a deck that we've, we socialized with that first group of 10, 15 employees. After we were working for about six, seven months together, we had a couple of offsides, we discussed those values, but fundamentally has remained very much similar. The first value has been we are, we're a customer-focused company. We think about the customer pain and then we walk backwards to build a business model, which is fundamentally different than big companies or banks, especially banks, tend to operate. And then on, on top of that with, that, with that first value inside, then we have a number of values that describe the type of organizational culture that we want to have. We want people that are young and that want to challenge the status quo, that will come to really challenge industries, but challenge ourselves to do things differently. Uh, we like to hire people that have, we say that have heads full of questions, not full of answers. A lot of companies tend to go and hire the person that has 40 years of experience at something. The problem when you hire somebody that has 40 years of experience is that you have a head full of answers. You already know how things are. So it's very hard for you to reinvent. It's very hard for you to challenge that status quo. So we love people that are young, that are creative, that come to challenge absolutely everything. We like to have an organizational structure that is very horizontal, where since the very first day, we're asking you what you think. We're asking you for your opinion. You have the ability to impact the organization. There is this ownership mentality where you can really go and impact the entire organization. And so obviously executing some of those values sometimes becomes hard as you scale from 10 employees to 2,700. But the fundamental nature of those values don't need to change. So the culture of the company has scaled very well and it has scaled through a number of different routines that I think we maintain. I still do, for example, that culture presentation, the culture deck is something that I have presented to the 2,700 people that have started a new bank. Every month I present those values, I present those cultures, my way to, for me to introduce myself to the new, new new bankers, as we call them. We have our all-hands meeting continuously every two weeks. 
and anyway, we have a number of different routines that maintain that culture healthy and, and that allow us to figure out what is working well and what might not be working well. That makes sense. And, and how has this culture fared uh, in light of the current pandemic? The culture has overperformed any, anything I would have imagined. We have, we have an engagement survey that we send to all our employees several times per year. Through the pandemic, we've sent it almost every week to sub-segments of, of different people in Newbank. And we've always had a really high engagement. We always had from zero to 100 across a number of questions where we ask people, do you recommend working for Newbank? Are you happy to come to work? How, how engaged are you? How motivated you are? We've always hovered since the beginning of the company at something like 85 to 88. Over the past few weeks, we've reached the highest levels we've seen since the beginning of Newbank. We've seen levels of 93 and 94 percentage of engagement. And I think is the reason why that's been the case is because the pandemic has allowed us to really test a lot of those values and show that they are being authentic. So for example, as I mentioned, our first value is, the, is having the customer focus. In time of crisis, that's really when you're able to show that whether what you say is real or, or is just something pretty that you put on the wall for people to look at. One of the very first things that we did in the pandemic was to set up a 20 million REI fund to help our customers in anything they needed. From obviously refinancing their debts at, at interest rates as low, um, you know, 80, 85% these kind of interest rates to refinancing a lot of the debts to uh, providing free telemedicine service to customers that couldn't afford going to a doctor, to providing free food for customers that actually didn't have food to eat. Uh, we sent diapers and milk to customers that didn't have money to provide for their babies. Uh, we did partnerships with uh, startups that provided uh, anxiety support or psychological support. So the crisis gave us an opportunity to really put these values of customer centricity to test. It also allowed us to put the values of taking care of our employees really well. Very early on, we were one of the first companies that decided to send everybody to work home remotely in Brazil. We, over the course of 24 hours, we sent everybody to work from home. And we had a great infrastructure that allows us to maintain that remote. But we went beyond and we were very focused on making sure that people were productive and people were safe at home. Just to give you some examples, we sent over a thousand ergonomic chairs to people's houses because people didn't know where they were working on their beds all day, eight hours. They couldn't be productive. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't feel well. We sent over a thousand monitors and keyboards and mouse to people's houses. And so those details just really showed our employees that we really care about them. We were one of the few startups that didn't, didn't do any layoffs. We were in really great financial situation and we made sure that, that people were in good, um, in good standings and they were, they were well taken care of. So the pandemic kind of created this situation where we always say crises are the moments where your values are really tested. And I think for, we saw that as, a, as an internal test to show integrity, to show that what we said, that we were doing what we said that we were going to do. And since we did that, people's uh, motivation and engagement increased to the levels that I, that I mentioned to you. Definitely a, a major challenge, not just for Nugam, but for the industry as a whole. How do you envision the new normal going forward? How are we going to approach the post-pandemic world? 
So I think the post-pandemic world accelerates the acceleration of a number of different trends that were happening all across industries and companies and even economic models. So the easy, obviously, the ones are digitalizations of all the industries, from financial services to education to media. All the industries were digitizing. This shock accelerates that acceleration. So those are sort of the most obvious trends. Another trend that was happening was the trend around remote working. A lot of companies, especially startups, were getting slowly more comfortable with remote. We being in Brazil, one of the challenges that we always see to grow was certain technical talent. And that had forced us already to have offices outside Latin America. We had an office, two years ago, we opened an office in Berlin, in Germany. We had an office in Buenos Aires. But we were still sort of not fully convinced about being remote work. We thought we needed an actual physical space to bring that talent. The pandemic has made us fully comfortable on being fully remote work. I don't think we'll go to 100%, although some teams might actually be 100% remote. But fundamentally, that just changes our mind about we being comfortable having teams remote. And this means now our pool of talent is the world. It's not Brazil. It's not Latin America. It is the world. Today, we already have people in over 50 countries working for Nubank, fully remote. We have people in the Middle East, we have people in India, we have people in Europe, in almost every time zone in the U.S. So I think that, that just kind of accelerates. And one trend that I also like to talk about that gets accelerated, that is maybe less obvious, I also think is the role of companies in society. Before the pandemic, you started to hear a lot about conscious capitalism, about companies, think about their different stakeholders. Uh, and as I mentioned now, the pandemia really forced companies to show integrity and to take care of their customers, their people, their communities. A lot of companies have used this crisis to show that they really care about their community. In our case, with what we did for customers, what we did for employees is the way for us to, to really see that redefined nature of a company. I think the post-pandemia world will have companies embracing a much broader view of capitalism, of taking care of their societies, of taking care of their environment, of taking care of their people. So in a way, the, the pandemic doesn't necessarily, I don't think it creates new trends. It really just accelerates trends of behaviors of society, of economic models and of behaviors. That's fascinating. Now, speaking a little bit on, on the business front, we're talking a day after a, a major announcement, which is this partnership that you have launched with Facebook and WhatsApp, where in Brazil, users of WhatsApp will now be able to send payments through the platform. Can you talk a little bit about this partnership? Sure. So one of the ambitions of Nubank since the very beginning has been to increase uh, not only to bank the banked consumers better and cheaper and faster, Latin America has, has about 400 million customers that have banking access, but today pay some of the highest banking costs in the world. Uh, in Brazil, as I mentioned, interest rates in credit cards and loans go up to 400, 500, 600% a year. But Brazilian, the Brazilian banking oligopoly charges from the highest fees in the world. If you look at Mexico, it's the same. It's an oligopoly of banks, Colombia, Argentina, Peru. Banking industry, which is also one of the biggest industries in Latin America, is an industry of oligopolies. There hasn't really been competition in decades. 
So part of our ambition since the beginning was to bring competition to this industry and decrease the cost of banking for all these bank consumers. But part of also the ambition has been to, there's over 250 million Latin Americans that have no access to banks. Because banks in, the, in a world of oligopolies, in a world of offline branches, they have no interest in open a bank account for somebody that will, that will deposit $50 or that will get a $50 loan. It's completely uneconomical. So there is a third of the population that has been marginalized in Latin America. And part of, what, of our intention, of our ambition is to also bank and formalize a third of that population. So when we think about what are the platforms today that have access to 90% of the Latin American population, the most popular of that is WhatsApp. WhatsApp is the most pervasive uh, piece of technology today in Latin America, maybe in emerging markets. And so with that, we've always, we've thought for a number of years that there was a lot of complementarity between what WhatsApp could bring and what Nubank could bring. WhatsApp bring that access, but they don't have banking licenses. They don't, they're not in the banking business. What we bring is a, is, is a real understanding of banking, is using a lot of internally developed technology, credit underwriting algorithms to be able to expand banking services to, to the entire population. So we think it's a very complementary relationship and we're very happy to, after a number of years of discussing with Facebook and WhatsApp on this, to be able to finally launch these yesterday uh, for Brazil. And, and we think it's just gonna be a game-changing partnership for, uh, for the Brazilian consumer. It's really going to help us to accelerate those trends that I was mentioning, decrease cost of banking and bank the unbanked. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, before we go there, David, one last question. How has the ecosystem in Latin America evolved, entrepreneurial ecosystem that is, and how do you envision it going forward? It has changed significantly since I mentioned uh, in 2012 when I was with Sequoia and we came to terms with that sad realization. Today is a way much more active ecosystem. Most of the, if you look at the, the biggest Latin American startups, they're really finally solving problems that Latin Americans have. They're not doing the copycat thing, uh, which is great because if there's one truth for Latin Americans is we have full of problems. I always say that just leave your house in any in Bogota or Mexico City or Buenos Aires and go into urban transportation or go to a hospital or go to a university or get a bank account. The amount of friction points of underserved markets, of underserved consumers is gigantic. The amount of entrepreneurship opportunities in Latin America is huge. So it was sad to see that a lot of the early Latin American startups were very much focused on solving the problem of the Silicon Valley engineer. So finally, we, I think we've done that bridge. Latin American entrepreneurs are now solving the real problems that need to be solved for, for Latin America. And so we're in way better shape. I still think, though, that there's an opportunity to take an even bigger leapfrog. And what's still happening is there's still massive undersupply of technical talent in the region. Today, I was looking at these numbers. In Bogota or Sao Paulo, more people graduated from computer science in 2000 than in 2020. There are less engineers being graduated in Sao Paulo today than 20 years ago. That is absolutely crazy. There are still there are two x more lawyers graduating in Bogota today than engineers. So something still missing fundamentally in 
people, actually students or, or the population realizing that the future of Latin America is technology. Something still has to shift. I think it, it probably will take a while for part of the, what needs to happen is we need new banks to be successful, but we also need 20 more new banks or other startups to be successful so that people start realizing, seeing that technology is the next wave of, of companies and, and that technical talent is the key raw material. I think that's what's really missing. But I'm very hopeful and I'm very optimistic about the trends. And, and so I think we just sort of need to continue pushing hard and seeing a lot of these trends develop. Fascinating. Well, David, thank you very much again for joining us. It's, uh, it's been a treat. And we look forward to having you sometime around campus as well. It will be my pleasure, Miguel. Thank, thanks a lot. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.